Please take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 9. The Acts of the Apostles, the only history book of the New Testament, was written by the physician Luke. And so we continue studying his perspective of how the early church developed and what the gospel implied and lived out in the lives of the people. We come to, of course, that amazing moment when Saul experienced God in a transforming way. Saul, of course, is the Hebrew or the Israeli name. Paul was the Roman name, and we know him most often as St. Paul, as the great uh, apostle that expanded the kingdom throughout all of the of the world. There's a saying in Shakespeare's Hamlet that has been very helpful to all of us. Uh, in Hamlet, the phrase is used to describe an actress in Hamlet's little scheme to expose uh, this woman who's claiming, of course, that she loves her husband. But in his little play that he does within the play, he has her acting in such a way that she is trying to convince everyone that if her husband were to die, that she would never remarry. And so Hamlet turns to his mother, Queen Gertrude, who the actress is meant to portray, and he asks her, what, what do you think about this portrayal? And his mother responds, the lady doth protest too much, methinks. When I was growing up in Oklahoma, we reversed it and said, methinks he doth protest too much. We said it, of course, when uh, we're talking to a person who's very adamant and emotional and reactive in their denial of something or their opposition to something. We, of course, recognize it here in Queen Gertrude that her emotions connected with this in such a way that her mouth is saying something that is different from her true intention, from what is happening within. And so when a person is overreacting, we, of course, use that phrase. When I was growing up, my parents, my dad is a pastor, and my mom, of course, worked with him in the church. And my parents would often use this expression to speak of a person who was arguing too much against Christianity. And the implication I have also found to be true in my own experience with people, that those who fight the strongest against Christian faith are, of course, protesting too much. There is something compelling them, and they're fighting against it. There's some kind of internal struggle that causes them to overreact. They're not indifferent. Indifferent, of course, they don't protest at all. They care nothing about it. And so there's no active engagement with the faith. They're just uh, apathetic toward it. I think of that, of course, when I think of Saul's opposition to Christians. As we study his account in this early moment in his life, here is a person who takes it upon himself not just to go next door and get Stephen and watched as he is being killed, but he goes and he gets the paperwork. Now, who likes paperwork? He gets the paperwork, the authority to go to Damascus, another town, to arrest Christians and take them back to Jerusalem. Methinks he does protest too much. Now, I could be wrong, of course. Paul could be zealous for his religion, want to protect his faith by killing anybody that even dares to change it. 
But if that is the case, then he took that same zeal with him into his Christian ministry where he was willing to die for Christ. He is a great leader within the life of the church. So either way, there is something rather over the top about Saul. He's, he's either vigorous about his faith, wanting it to be protected and cared for, or he's protesting too much on this new uh, change and transformation that's occurring within the biblical uh, religions. So as we go into this amazing moment, and this is one of the most profound moments of transition we find within Scripture, where a persecutor becomes a proclaimer of the faith, where God breaks in with a, an insight, a light so powerful that in fact he goes blind and can't see anything else except what God has done. And then it is as though scales fall off his eyes when Ananias prays for him and he's able to see perhaps for the first time and have the eyes to really see and to really understand. That's what we want to explore. Now, two chapters before this one, in, in the ninth chapter of Acts, Luke was writing about how Saul was very approving as they watched, as he watched the stoning of Stephen. It even uses that word. Paul stood by and approved the death of Stephen. Now, that lesson is, of course, a powerful one. It fits our ministry of jolt today as we're attempting to bring justice into the world and fighting for the oppressed. But the lesson is a, is a simple one. It's not only those who throw the stones and destroy the powerless among us. In this case, of course, it was Christianity. But in our day, any majority that throws stones and destroys a minority in any nation is the same principle. It's not only those who throw the stones and destroy, it's those who stand by and give either tacit or actual approval that that injustice can continue. And so that lesson's a powerful lesson as we look at what Saul did with Stephen stoning. But today the lesson goes on, and it's, it's taking this hatred and disregard for others to a, a whole different level to actually go to other places and actually oppress the people there who are not in agreement with you here. And of course, in this, uh, he experiences that that persecution of the minority is a persecution of Jesus. And he suddenly has insight that the harm that he's doing to others is something that's a harm that he's doing directly to God. So let's go to Acts chapter 9. We're going to just read uh, 20 verses of this um, ninth chapter. The NRSV calls it the conversion of Saul. Now, meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, and that's what uh, Christians were called in the early church, the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Now keep that open before you, and let's pray. Father, there are moments like this where transformation occurs. We all have them to some extent, perhaps not as dramatically as this one, but where we recognize fully what we're doing and we recognize that change needs to occur. Be with each of us. You, you know where we are on the way. You know what moments we need to experience today. And so speak to each of us uniquely with your Holy Spirit. And we will, of course, give you the praise. In Jesus we pray it. Amen. Now the opening phrase of this account and the ending statement demonstrate a depth of change that you seldom see within such a short period, a moment in time, really. Look at how Luke describes Saul when the story begins. He uses a very visceral uh, description as a physician, where he says, Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Breathing threats and murder. The word Luke uses there is actually a word that means to breathe, to breathe in and out threats. 
Can you kind of feel what that would be like on your esophagus, your throat, and your lungs to breathe in and out murderous threats? Saul was living in a place where threats and murder had become his very breath, his very life. Now that's where Saul begins, but that's not where he ends. It's interesting that in just a very few days, verse 20 tells us that after spending a few days with the disciples in Damascus, after receiving the Holy Spirit, the breath of God within him, he immediately began to proclaim Jesus to all the congregations, all the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Now think about that. That's only a moment in time, really. A few days. Saul goes from that breathing murderous threats to breathing the breath of God. Saul was now alive in a whole new way. Uh, a way that was so transforming and transformative that he was breathing a different breath. Now, I don't know how this change occurred in your life. I do know that it happens in each of our lives in different ways as we begin to breathe the breath of God, to be filled with his spirit, to live as he lives, there's no doubt that Saul, as I said, his Roman name, whose Greek name is Paul, that this is a moment when the direction of his life changed. He began to breathe a whole new life. Instead of breathing out murderous threats, he's breathing out proclamations. He's allowing Jesus to be the source of his life. So we want to look at how did this happened to him perhaps as a model. Now, all of us travel a different way. Some of us have not breathed anything but the breath of God, starting as children, and we've just grown in the faith. There was no moment where we had a Damascus Road experience. Others of us have had different moments where it's occurred at different times, where we've recognized clearly that we've been harming ourselves and others, and, and God has given us a, a clear insight and and we suddenly realize that we need to change the direction of our way and the journey that we're going. It's in this moment, though, that we have a person that is experiencing breath of God in a first and new way. One of the things I always say as I prepare people for baptism is that when you come back up out of the water and you take that first breath, breathe deeply not just the air of this world, but the breath of the Holy Spirit is a baptized one. Breathe deeply of God. I've told you I start every day with that. As I roll out of bed, I breathe a deep breath and ask the Spirit of God to come within me this day. That I'll breathe who He is in the ways that we breathe. Now, this moment, of course, was the moment in Saul's life. Each of us have our own. And so, are we breathing the breath of God is what we want to ask ourselves this day in all of its various forms. It's interesting that in Saul's life, God confronted his bad breath. He does that for all of us in all kinds of ways. So let's look at, Paul, at the steps of Saul's transformation. First, though he didn't realize it, and people with scales over their eyes don't realize it, he was living behind an impaired vision 
an impaired understanding of the meaning of life. Second, he was met there by Jesus where he was. Third, when Jesus revealed himself, Saul was so overwhelmed, blinded by the insight, that everything else seemed to pale in significance. And fourth, he was then led by God to a person who was prepared by God to disciple him, to help him understand and live and live a, a clear vision without those scales. Now let's expand just for a moment on each of those. First, that he was living behind scales that impaired his vision and understanding. Now we know that there were something like scales because we are told that when Ananias put his hands on him and prayed for him, that scales fell and his sight was restored. Now, of course, he was speaking literally of, of Paul's blindness at that moment and his physical sight was restored. But there is a far deeper spiritual meaning. He was blind a long time before that Damascus Road experience. He did not see who Jesus was until that moment. He did not know who it was that he was persecuting. So let's stop and, and think about that for ourselves. Are there scales over our eyes? Are we blind to anything or anyone? Do we not have the eyes to see? In psychology, we have a condition called inattentional blindness. It is a psychological condition. It's not based, in fact, on the eyes or the brain physically, but it's rather based on the focus of our attention. Magicians, of course, use it all the time where they misdirect us and cause us to pay attention to the wrong things while they're doing other things outside of our, uh, our eyes. You've perhaps seen this ad. I love this ad. It's a, a, a bicycle ad in which they tell you to count how many times the white team passes the ball. And you're sitting there concentrating all the way through it. And then they ask you this question at the end. Did you see the moonwalking bear? I didn't. I don't know if you did. But in all of them, it's not the eyes that are not working, but it's the brain. We see what we're looking for, not what is there. Saul was looking for people to threaten. Ananias was looking at the threat. Jesus was looking for an apostle to be an instrument of his to reach the Roman world. Inattentional blindness shows us only what we're looking for, and we're blind to the rest. So the question that we always have to ask, and it should be, of course, one of the first asked questions of prayer. What am I looking for? What am I looking for? Now, in his blindness and in our blindness, Jesus met him and he meets us where we are. It's interesting to me that Jesus did not wait for Saul to be on the road to church whenever he confronted him. He engaged him where he was. In fact, he didn't even wait for Saul to stop persecuting his people before he confronted him. And he didn't wait for Saul to want to obey him before he gave him guidance on what he should do in order to have eyes to see. 
Now, it's true, of course, and it's true for your life and for mine, that Saul could have ignored Jesus, and he could have just gone on in his blindness. His companions, of course, wouldn't be much help along the way. He was hanging out with the wrong crowd, as most of us do when we get caught up in in things that are not helpful, but thankful for all of us. God meets us where we are. He will confront us, often through the circumstances, often through the destruction, often through the, the things that happen because of the choices that we're making, but he meets us. So think back for a moment when you have encountered Jesus. Where were you? What were you doing? Did Jesus confront you and did you have a sense of having been blind to the harm you were causing yourself and the harm you were causing others? Now third, when Jesus revealed himself where Saul was on the road to harm others, Saul became overwhelmed, blinded by the insight he gained from Jesus, just as he could then see nothing because he was so blinded. Everything changed for him. Commentators note that Saul was in this condition for three days, the same amount of time that Jesus was in the darkness of the tomb. They note that when we gain new life, it then takes a moment to begin to live again, to see again. So let's ask ourselves, what new insight has Jesus brought into my life? And was it overwhelming when I first realized it? Did it make everything else seem less important, like pale in significance? Did it change the focus of my attention so that I began to see God everywhere where I had missed him before. And then last, leaving out that hesitancy, that's a whole other sermon of Ananias, his fear that he might be in personal danger to do the work of God. Ananias finally reached out and Saul began his life. And he began a life within the care of the church, within the care of of God's people. In this case, within the care of Ananias and the other disciples of Damascus. It's in that place, as he spent time with the people of God, that Saul regained his sight. The scales that had so blinded him before and after this experience fell, and he began to see. So that leads us to the final question. Let's ask ourselves, do I have the eyes to see? Am I paying attention to the right things? Am I allowing myself to be under the care of the disciples of Santa Barbara? And am I growing in my understanding and in my vision? Am I proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God in all of the gatherings, the congregations in which I find myself? When Ananias placed his hands on Saul, Saul began to see. Let's come to God today. Let's allow him to give us the eyes to see.